The end of a life is a sad occasion, but listen as our friend Randy with Stokes, Proc, and Munt and the Cremation Society tells us about how the end-of-life services they facilitate serve a role they do not take lightly. But as we celebrate a person's life and even tell funny stories about them, that's a very healing thing. I mean, if you can take a family that's crying, sobbing, and and get them laughing about the person that died. That's very healing. That's a very important thing, you know. I mean, we take our work very, very seriously. Randy and the folks at Stokes, Proc, and Munt, along with the Cremation Society, are available to answer any of your questions, including pre-planning your arrangements. Check them out online and on social media. Number 13 and number 3, otherwise known as Mogi and JC, welcoming you to the next episode of the Breakout Sessions podcast. This episode is sponsored by Raleigh's Coach Club and Hertel Law. We'd like to welcome our featured guest to the podcast, founder and director of Minnesota Made Hockey, Bernie McBain. But before we get to Bernie, we're going to start out with our medical minute. Please welcome Lynn from Chippewa Valley Orthopedics. Hi, I'm here today with Medical Minute and just wanted to touch base with everybody to remind you to stay active in the off season and make sure you're doing a good strengthening and conditioning program. Don't forget the flexibility. All of these things help to prevent an injury. So as Ben Franklin would always say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Thank you, Lynn. And stay tuned for Bernie McBain of Minnesota Made Hockey. Now our featured guest, Bernie McBain. Mogi? Hey, Bernie, thanks so much for having us here at your Minnesota-made hockey arena. We really appreciate you hosting us this morning. Yeah, thanks for uh, making the trip over to uh, Edina and visit our rink. It's been our pleasure so far. And, you know, you've got quite a hockey resume yourself, but let's just start out with when did you become involved in the game of hockey? Uh, well, on the east side of St. Paul, I grew up. My playground was Dayton's Bluff, uh, so I would have been a uh, a Johnson kid if we stayed in in uh, on the east side of St. Paul. But I grew up off of Bates and Arcade. Went to Van Buren, which actually the uh, the school backed right up to Dayton's Bluff playground. That was my playground. That's where I got my first pair of ten dollar. Uh, Bobby Hall skates and uh, I went out and started learning how to skate. I didn't actually play organized hockey until I got to um, uh, we moved to White Bear Lake when uh, so I was a little bit late uh, started in the third grade and uh, so I would take and got my first organized uh, taste of organized hockey in White Bear Lake uh, skating at the uh, outdoor rinks at the uh, high school and then you'd play your games on Saturday morning at the Hippodrome. Those are kind of your stomping grounds, aren't they, Moe? I was going to say, holy cow, I, I grew up uh, in the Margaret Playground area, so just a couple blocks away from, from you guys. I was sure. in Minnehaha and Johnson Parkway. Yeah. So we may have run into each other over the years. It, 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 good old St. Paul. There you go. <laughs> you know, I hear stories about the outdoor rinks, which I enjoyed as a kid growing up, too. 
Do you feel there's a connection to kids that have been able to hone their skills on the old outdoor rinks compared to kids that don't have that opportunity? I think uh, uh, it, the outdoor rinks were great. I mean, I started out in White Bear Lake, eventually moved to Wyoming, Minnesota. So I was uh, in eighth grade. I was in Forest Lake uh, system, and then uh, uh, but lived in Wyoming, and we literally. Back then, you could ride a snowmobile anywhere. So, you know, we were we, we were all had beat up old $150 sleds, and we just put our skates in the back and the uh, uh, stick on the, you know, put it right inside the cowling and run down to the rink. And you could tell who was coming to play by the sound of their snowmobiles because all the snowmobiles were so unique <laughs> back then. And so we would we all had keys to the warming house, and that's that's literally what we did. So if, if it was uh, – if we were able to skate, we were skating because you didn't have the Internet. You had – you know, maybe four TV channels that worked and, and, uh, but we did, like I said, growing up in small town, we had 672 people and, uh, we would literally live at that ice rink all, all rink, uh, all winter long. And so when you're asking a guy that grew up like that, if the outdoor ice was valuable, it, it, it's absolutely valuable. And I look back and when I was buying my uh, second home and my son was born and my son, Jamie, you know, he played for the Badgers and went on to play in the NHL. And, and we purposely looked for a home with a pond in the backyard. And so again, we, we set up lights and we had that pond. It was, it was close to a small rink, about 170 feet long and 60 feet wide. And he just really, the, every moment he could be out there uh, skating, that's, that's what he was doing with his buddies. That's <laughs> wow. Brings back I, memories for me. Well, I'm looking at uh, I'm looking at Bernie as he talks about it, and I just see his eyes. It's like, oh, he's reminiscing about some really good times in the past. There were some good times. Yep, for absolutely. Now, beyond you know the outdoor rinks and. and did you play in high school then yourself? Yeah, I played uh, Forest Lake and then, uh, uh, you know, basically just through high school. Uh, and then you just played in whatever men's leagues you would uh, play in. Uh, I would pretty much skate every open hockey. I, my schedule was somewhat flexible, so I'd be over at Richfield with open hockey, you know, pretty much every day uh, they had it. And then you'd be over at Bloomington. Uh, I played in uh, a bunch of men's leagues. One of the, uh, I became a Christian uh, uh, shortly after high school. I started uh, getting into uh, skating in the Ocanto, which is now uh, a well-established league that we actually run out of here. It was run out of Augsburg back in the day, but uh, that is now run by Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So yeah, played up until the five knee surgeries, and I haven't played in the last few years. <laughs> You're among some select company here. How many for you, JC? Nine knee surgeries. Nine. How many fake knees? I got both fake knees now. Yeah. One fake yeah. knee, and the the left's got one surgery. The the right's got five. So. But yet you're still on skates, right? I'm still coaching. Yeah, not as much as I used to, but uh, I'm still on the skates. I can still get around, just not as fast as I used to. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but I come off the ice every time and I tell the kids, I didn't fall down or nothing. <laughs> that's, that's a plus at our age. That's a, that's a big that's you know, a victory. You're talking hockey. Falling down's easy, but it's the getting up part now that uh, is a little harder. <laughs> that's exactly right. You know, you mentioned, you've been mentioning hockey. Did you play other sports and... and if so, what was still the big attraction to hockey? 
Well, it, it's, uh, I, I played baseball up, uh, uh, you know, through like 10th grade. And then uh, I was actually, believe it or not, a better wrestler than I was a hockey player. But when you got to, uh, again, high school, you had to make the choice because they're both winter sports. Uh, rec- wrestling practices were grueling. Hockey practices were a lot more fun. But uh, uh, so, yeah, baseball and hockey and, you know, you'd play football. Um, but mostly it was it was hockey. And then, you know, afterwards, you're, you know, I almost was like an adult rink rat for for just years after, uh, high school and, and, you know, and then eventually, you know, we got to the point where we started the hockey school. So let's talk about that hockey school. What led you to establish Minnesota made hockey? It's kind of a funny story because, uh, you know, the abbreviated version, I was actually, um, I, I worked for us women fitness, which, you know, was kind of the forerunner of lifetime fitness, Brahma Crotty, who, who is the CEO of lifetime was one of the owners of us women fitness. And I got in the sales, did really well for them. And then, uh, I was kind of a movie buff. So, uh, I bought a, uh, movie store, a uh, video rental store, and then I bought a second one, uh, Bally's corporation took over us swim fitness. So, you know, it wasn't the same company. I decided to leave and I was just working, uh, kind of running my own video stores to kind of figure out, okay, what am I going to do next? Well, Blockbuster came in to the market. And my little mom and pop video shops were literally out of business in six weeks. And so uh, I, I, I was basically out of business and didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, so I was working odd jobs. I was a cab driver at night. I, I went into sales and sold diamonds for a company named a Canadian company called Spence Diamonds and didn't really have a lot of direction, didn't have a lot of money at the time either. And my son was getting to the point where uh, he was starting to play hockey and I couldn't afford to buy him skates. So basically what happened is I started with a couple of clinics and uh, to get him some ice time and thought, well, I can make a few dollars doing that uh, to maybe buy, buy him a pair of skates uh, each year. Well, people liked what we did and literally overnight uh, from a couple of uh, one week hour and a half clinics it uh that first summer that i started doing instead of just doing one or two of those clinics ended up be six the following summer and ended up being 12 third summer we said hey let's see if we can do this as a business and you know some 30 years later here we are wow that's quite a story holy mackerel so don't get into the rental uh uh, video rental rental. (laughs) thanks for the tip there you go (laughs) you know when you were starting out with these clinics what sort of uh, age groups did you have and what sort of things were you teaching? Uh, in the beginning, we mostly started out with just mites and squirts. Um, you know, those are the largest numbers of kids playing hockey. Uh, my son was at that age, so it was easy for us to to kind of network. And and again, people, they, they just kind of really liked what we did because it was uh, it was pretty intense and there was a lot of discipline. Uh, people would always ask me if I served in the military and I'd have to tell them no. Uh, but, uh, the, uh, cause we kind of ran a tight ship out on the ice. And so it, um, uh, it really, it started out with kind of that might and squirt age and kind of grew from there. So did you st- where did you actually start the, the clinics then? Were you renting ice time around we the did. Twin Cities? Yeah. Uh, our first clinics were at uh, Richfield Ice Arena uh, back when it was just the one called it, you know, the hut because it looked like the Pizza Hut building, you know, uh, from the outside. <laughs> and then uh, Bloomington Ice Garden. So we were 
primarily at Bloomington for the whole run, uh, all those years before we built our own rink. Uh, and then we were also at Richfield, but we used uh, Edina. We used Eden Prairie, uh, the old Breck Arena, which was originally the Golden Valley Ice Center, uh, uh, which is gone now. It used to be run by Red Carries, big uh, kind of a father of broomball back in the day. Uh, but uh, we used Egan, uh, Lakeville. So we were at uh, probably about 10, 12 rinks around the city before we uh, found this place, which was an old tennis club and converted it over to an ice arena. So you're at 12 whatever different places. You're kind of at the whim of their programs. You're at the whim of their scheduling. So I imagine it was... Uh, Kind of a logistical, you had to be a really good logistical guy to figure all that out. But now you've got control over everything here. So that must make it a lot easier. People just come to you now. Yeah, it's, um, you know, back then you just kind of schedule. We'd we'd have, uh, you know, we'd do during the summer, you have 11 weeks. We would do clinics uh, 10 weeks out of the the 11 weeks of the kids are off of school. And we would set it up. So some weeks we'd be at Eden Prairie in the morning and we'd do three hour, 20 minute, hour, 15 minute clinics in the morning. We'd take just enough time to gather everything up and then we'd head over to the Breck Arena for afternoon sessions. And, you know, it, it originally it was more skating and then really our niche kind of became uh, stick handling, which became uh, kind of a real mainstay for us. But then, yeah, the uh, again, you know, um, when we had uh, one of the um, some of the parents, when we had our 88 team, which my son grew up on, and that team had Eric Johnson and Peter Mueller and Carlo Poso, all first round draft picks. Had my son. There were 11 kids that ended up playing Division One hockey on that team, and eight of them ended up getting drafted. Uh, and uh, um, so again, though that. That kind of group of parents are like, boy, you really got to expand this. We had some interest from USA Hockey, uh, Ken Martell, you know, kind of coming and seeing what we were doing. You know, how does this group of kids at this level, how did this all happen? And so there was kind of a lot of interest in us uh, seeing if we could expand and we wanted to expand. And um, I had another friend, his name was Steve Malarkey, who ended up being a partner in the rink. He had come across this building and it was it was owned by a church and then uh, was an empty uh, tennis club. So on this half of the building, there were three rinks. On the other half, there were five or excuse me, tennis courts. And then on the other half, there were five. They had five uh, outdoor ones. Well, we ended up buying the building from the church and then, uh, it was all on a shoestring, all, everything, the boards were used, the Zambonis were used, the refrigeration system was out of a rink that had closed in Texas. And so, uh, it really was kind of a done on about 50 cents of the, on the dollar compared to what a new facility would be. But, but again, we were right in the middle of where you would want to be. If you looked at a map of this, of the city and say, Hey, where do you want to put an ice rink? Well, here we are in Edina with five and a half acres and a 75,000 square foot building, two sheets of ice. And, you know, and now we've acquired the, uh, the, uh, smaller rinks up in St. Louis park. Uh, and that's kind of our, our second sheet. So it does give us the ability to, uh, control everything. We can kind of adapt to what the market demands are these last few years because they took checking out of peewees, our Bantam checking clinics. Uh, we, we can't have enough of them. They constantly fill because people get to that Bantam age and they go, these are some big guys and my kid doesn't know what he's doing and we need to get him some training. We've always been known for our stick handling, our AAA teams, 
uh, are some of the best in the country. And uh, obviously our choice league during the winter is a great alternative to uh, uh, winter hockey. And you're right. We're able to control it all and schedule it all. And, and, uh, and that's how we've been able to be successful by being able to, to have that ability because no one else, honestly, in the state of Minnesota has rinks at their disposal and then can take and do what we do. <laughs> that is just a dream. You know, well, you started from evolution. nothing and, you know, <laughs> look where you're at now. You know, we've talked about these clinics, your rinks and so forth. Bernie, did you yourself go to any like USA hockey clinics or did you just start from scratch and, and take these kids in based on the knowledge that you already had? Well, it's kind of a, a, a funny thing about uh, coaching because you know you play your whole life you know and uh you know high school's done you're playing every weekend every evening you can the first date I went out with my wife I took her to one of my games I got hit in the nose and my nose was bleeding all over the place and she didn't see it she was out getting hot chocolate and then she's like I was gone when she came back in the rink but there was blood all over the rink and she came down the locker room and there I am stuffing toilet paper and paper towels up into both nostrils because they're bleeding all over. And, uh, so, so again, the, you know, when you, when you get to these, the kind of through the whole progression of, uh, of the game, you, when you start coaching, I've heard it said that to, to teach something is to learn it twice. And that really is, uh, what I found to be the case when I, when I started out, I'd always played and I could do everything, but to take and try and articulate it to, to little kids, five, six, seven year olds was difficult. So, you know, you, uh, uh, so again, I really did kind of become, uh, in a sense, uh, a student of the game. You know, because you want to excel, you know, you're competitive, you're, you know, when I was in sales, I was competitive. When I played, I was competitive. And it was the same thing when I was coaching. Uh, you know, I wanted to be the best coach out on the ice. I, I actually became a, a, a real fan and read everything I could get my hands on from Anatoly Tarasov, uh, the father of Russian hockey. And, and uh, I, I, I would just absorb whatever he had. And one of the things that I learned um, from you know, studying the game and studying some of these uh, European uh, coaches was that you break it down into whole part whole. Take take what you're trying to accomplish, break it down into its smallest parts, teach the parts and reassemble it as a whole. But again, you know, like I said, to to teach something, it's to learn it twice. And then um, it, I, I tell people all the time, you know, our success, it, it, it's one of those things where all roads lead to where you stand. And when I was in high school, I worked at a YMCA camp. That gave me the experience of working with young kids. When I was in sales uh, for U.S. Women Fitness, that taught me how to do sales and how to do marketing. Uh, when I had those video stores, that taught me the business side of things. And all three of those things, uh, working with kids, learning how to sell and to market, learning how to run a business that brings us to where we are right now. Boom. So I don't know if I answered that. Oh, well that's, enough, that's amazing. So when you talk about your Minnesota made, uh, what type of programs do you have for the kids? Is it um, uh, skill based clinics? Do you have teams? Do you have seasons? What, what do you offer the, the kids who come to Minnesota made to play hockey? A little bit of everything. Um, so if, uh, it, you know, at the, at the change of every season, things kind of change for us. So, 
you know, right now we're, we're in April. So our AAA teams have just started up. So we have our machine teams, machine orange. That's kind of our, our top end. Uh, when you look at some of the guys recently, Scotty Reedy, who was on our 99 machine team was called up and is playing for the sharks. And, and, uh, so that was kind of a fun, fun thing to see Ryan Lindquist. Uh, you know, he was a machine player. We got loads of machine players that have gone through. So right now our, our triple A teams are going, we've got our machine orange teams, which are our top teams. We've got our machine black teams, which are kids that are just a, a hair underneath that very good and talented, uh, players dedicated, you know, a lot of passion for the game. And a lot of those kids end up becoming top players. Uh, Tristan Bros, who plays for the Gophers, actually originally started out on our on our uh, O2 Machine Black team, which is our second tier team. Then he moved up to our Machine Orange team, and, uh, and now he's playing for the Gophers. So, I mean, just a kid who started out doing clinics here, uh, Mike Clinics. And then he started doing Breakfast Club, which is our morning stick handling. But so right now in, in the spring, we're, we're in kind of our AAA, start of our AAA season. That runs through August. Uh, once the, um, the school is out, then we get into our summer clinics. And those start as early as 6 a.m., and go all the way up until 5 p.m., and then our AAA teams hit the ice. Once we get to the fall, uh, we have our fall clinics, and then uh, we have our Choice League, which, again, it's an alternative to um, winter hockey and the association. And the kids try out for that. And then we have teams. Uh, we had over 1,000 kids. I think we had 1,054 kids in our Choice League this last year, all the way from our rookies, which are four and five years old, all the way up to uh, kids that are second-year Peewees and first-year Bantams. And uh, uh, we're the last checking league left in the North America. So we have what we call our Super Leagues, which are SL1, Super League 1, Super League 2, Super League 3. So checking actually starts. We, we have a three-phase approach that we start at um, uh, second-year squirts. So we actually we went the other way, where USA Hockey moved it to Bantams. We went to first uh, second-year squirts because then the kids are all within a few pounds of each other, a couple of inches of each other. Their bodies aren't chock full of hormones, so they're out there trying to take off kids' heads, and it's a good time to teach them. Plus, the speed of the game isn't that fast. And so, you know, uh, it's a good time to teach checking at that point. And, and, and it's a progression. You know, we go through, uh, start out with kind of just going through the hands. Uh, and then what we do is we call uh, our second phase of what we call parallel checking, where that's where they can, they can use a body check, but only when they're traveling in the same direction. Uh, so that way it kind of protects that kid who's still coming across the middle with his head down. And then we have, uh, and then eventually the, about January, they get into full checking and that's, uh, these are all kids in the, that are in their second year squirts. And then we have our peewee levels and it's a little bit more involved and, uh, the kids are getting bigger and, and it's a good way to, to teach it. But then that's our choice season. Then when we, we, uh, during the school year, we have our morning, uh, stick handling. We have, uh, my son, Jamie offers uh, defensive clinics and that's, uh, uh, again, big focus there is to have defensemen who can handle the puck and, and can rather than just dumping the puck in. And like we always tell them, you know, these kids in the defensive clinics that work with my son and the ones that I work with, if you want to get a chance to go on to the upper levels, you got to get on the score sheet, even though you're a defenseman. And, uh, I always use the, the, my son was actually the leading scorer of the WCHA in, uh, 09 when he ended. And I tell the kids that all the time that here he was the leading scorer, but he only had seven goals. 
He had 37 points in the WCHA play, but 30 of them were assists. And defensemen that want to go on, you want to get on that score sheet. Most of it's going to come from someone else finishing for you. So anyway, so we have just an array. Stick handling, checking, battle camps, skating clamps, you name it. We have got our AAA teams in our leagues. So we, we kind of do it all. Wow. Yeah, that's that's all consuming. I mean, yeah, it's I I like the idea of the AAA so the kids can play outside your association, play AAA with you in the spring, summer, and into the fall. Then their associations start, they go back there. Otherwise, the kids are involved in your choice programs and they can stay with you really for 12 months out of the year. They they can. Um, We literally have had kids that uh, start with us and stay with us and go right into high school league uh, and never, never play Bantams at the association level. And, and that doesn't happen, you know, all that often because most of the time the kids do go back at the Bantam level. And, uh, uh, but again, yeah, you, you do have a few kids that have that late birthday that it works out where they're, they start with us at mites and then they stay with us through that first year of Bantams. And then their second year of Bantams, rather than going in second year of Bantams, they go on to the high school team. Yep. You know, I've got so many questions for him after this last, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. answer session. But we're going to take a break uh, for a second here and just give a shout out to uh, one of our sponsors, Raleigh's Coach Club in Altoona, Wisconsin, located across the street from the Altoona Ice Center on Spooner Avenue, has been a staple in the Altoona community for decades, providing support and sponsorship for youth and adult sports. Raleigh's has your favorite beverage ready and your favorite team on the screen, and he is a huge supporter of youth, high school, and adult hockey leagues. He's done very well for everybody. Yep, thanks, thanks, Raleigh. Appreciate everything you've done for us and, and the hockey community. You know, uh, Bernie, you're teaching kids checking at the squirt level, which uh, I admire. Is it tough for those kids once they start playing in a regular USA league, not to check or is the transition easy for them? I don't think so. I mean, when, when a good coach is going to teach the kids to go through the hands, uh, you want to separate, uh, you know, players coming up the ice and, you know, you give them ice to the outside, you take away the ice and then, you know, you're in a non-checking game. So what's going to happen? You're going to put your body in between the puck and the man that's into the hands. So you'll hear that a lot, you know, where they'll say, go through the hands or check the hands. And so even though that's not checking, you know, the only difference is, is you take a, a, a little bit of the body when you get to a body checking. Cause again, you know, the, a player coming up the board, so you, you, you want to end up with the puck. So what you don't want to do is, is take the whole body and then the puck keeps going. The guy bounces, uh, uh, you bounce off him and he continues with the puck. We've seen exactly. that a thousand times. Oh, a million probably. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, yeah, the, um, uh, I don't think it's ha- that hard for the kids. I mean, again, most of the kids that start out in our, uh, in our super leagues, we call them SL1, SL2, SL3. Most of those kids are with us all three years. So if they start with us in their, in their, uh, at that second year squirt and then they play second year squirt, first year peewee, second year peewee with us and with a few, um, first year bantams who have those later birth dates, then they're moving on to bantams. They're at the checking level. The thing is though, is that they've got, uh, close to 200 games under their belt with checking before most kids who are in Bantams have even a single game at checking level. You know, do you have an opinion about that as far as USA taking away the checking until the Bantam level? And instead of when I grew up and probably you grew up, you know, we were learning those skills at the squirt level. 
Yeah, I, I um, uh, obviously, I, I think it, it, it I, I don't think you're doing the kids any service. I mean, USA Hockey, uh, it's their organization. They get to do what they want. But again, yeah, I mean, just think about it. You've got a kid at or kids at the Bantam level. You might have a kid that's 90 pounds and stands five feet. You might have another kid that's 160 pounds and stands six foot one. And now they've got to compete against each other. Well, that smaller player is, you know, he's a target. And again, he hasn't learned anything there. There's the, the, the boys are getting their shot of, of hormones at that point. So some of them are super aggressive and they're turning into young men where others at that Bantam level are, they're still boys. And so you've got, uh, that, that kid that again, he he's fearless because you know, he's just going through puberty and, uh, and so he's aggressive. And then you got these kids that are, are not ready for that. So the, the nice thing about teaching the kids how to do it early is that again, they're all within a few pounds of each other. They're within a couple of inches of each other. They're not, their bodies aren't chock full of hormones. So they're not out there looking to take somebody's head off. And then the thing is, is that they don't weigh as much. The speed of the game isn't as high. And we give them a chance to learn where they are on the ice. You know, they, uh, you know, that first year bantam who's going up against a kid that's, uh, you know, uh, 60 pounds heavier than him. And now he's three feet off the boards. He's going to end up with a broken collarbone, you know, because he doesn't know where he is. Where at the younger levels, uh, we have a chance to kind of work with them on that. It's a progression. And so they get to find out, okay, where am I at on the ice? Where am I vulnerable? The other thing is they get to learn the grittiness the gritty part of the game because all of a sudden contact that amps it up. So they're playing real hockey at the squirt level. The other thing that's uh, important is that they're getting their head up years earlier. They don't, they can't get away with skating around with their head down because no one can touch them. If they got their head down, they're going to learn to get that head up pretty quick. And then the problem is, is that um, uh, these kids get to learn and this is important, but it's it. How much time do they have? Or how little time do they have? Because when kids get to the checking level in the beginning, and I don't care if you're starting at Bantams, you're starting at Squirt, you'll have the kid that thinks he has less time, so he's constantly throwing the puck away. And then you got the kid who's the opposite, who thinks he's got more time than he does, and he's always getting hit. Well, when they learn that at that younger level, it prepares them for that Bantam level and it prepares them for playing high school hockey, prepares them for playing junior and college level. And it's a much safer environment because, again, size, weight, speed, it's all in their favor at that younger level. Yeah, for certain. You know, and, and everything you're saying is what we would hope every coach is teaching, which leads me to ask you, how do you choose your coaching staff? Uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, we have, first of all, we have 13 uh, full-time coaches working for us here. Uh, there, uh, well, I'll say 13 full-time staff and, and I think we've got, uh, 10 full-time, uh, coaches and we've got, you know, my son who, who obviously played in the NHL. We got guys that have been working for us that were just rink rats growing up and played high school hockey. Uh, we got guys that have played juniors. We got Seth Ambrose who played for the Gophers. He's one of our full-time guys. Uh, uh, Adam Hauser who's another Gopher played for the LA Kings. He's on our staff. And, and so what we do is that all of our, uh, uh, for our AAA teams, most all of our machine orange teams, our top orange teams are coached by one of our full-time guys. Um, 
during our, the winter season with our choice league, we do a little bit different where each one of our full-time guys is in charge of a particular age level because we go mostly by birth year for our winter. So I'll give you an example, like Seth Ambrose, uh, former gopher, he's uh, overseas, he's our, he's our 2011 birth year machine orange coach. And then during the winter, he oversees uh, the choice league that uh, contains most of the 2011s. And again, you know, sometimes we do it by ability, uh, you know, so we match kids up. So, uh, you might have a kid that's a, a 2010, that's maybe a little bit smaller or, or not quite as skilled as, uh, at, at, at the 2010 level. And so he's with the 11s. Um, but again, then what we do is that coach then oversees that particular level. So he's in charge of all of those coaches. Most of those coaches have, uh, start out with it at the mites. We, we always provide practice plans for them for every single practice. So what we don't want is we don't want the guy that's got a great heart and shows up, but he's got a business and he's got a family and he's trying to get the kid fed and he shows up at the rink and he looks at his other coaches and says, okay, what do you want to do today? We don't want that. What do you got? Yeah. So what we do is we provide uh, practice plans for them at all levels. So, uh, and again, the other thing is too, is that then if you have, uh, if we have two, say uh, two of our, our, our squirt teams practicing, one's on our South rink, one's on our North and, and they're the same level team and one, a parent can come in and they can look at the one rink and then go over to the other rink. They'll see the exact same thing. The only difference might be the temperament of the coach. Maybe one guy's a, a little bit uh, louder and the other guy is a little bit more soft or spoken, but the quality of the practice is the same. And then we've been doing this for close to 30 years. So, um, and I think the kids that have come through kind of prove that uh, it works. And so uh, that's, I think that answers your question uh, on the coaches. Well, can we talk about what works? Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the legendary Minnesota 88s. So how did this group come together and achieve so much, both collectively and individually? Well, uh, first of all, your son, my son was on the team. It gives you a it kind of fills you with passion. You know, I had one boy and so his only shot to, to see if I could have a, a, a son that was a, an accomplished hockey player. And so, you know, that team was, was just filled with passion, um, uh, from day one. Um, the coaches were passionate. I was passionate. The families were passionate. The other thing is there was a lot of competition at that birth year. Uh, and if you look back at the 1987 birth year, which was the year uh, guys like Ryan Stola, uh, uh, Stoa and Alex Taylock, those guys came through. Uh, and then if you look at the 88 year, which is the year my son was at Jamie, and then you had Kyle Oposo and Peter Mueller and Eric Johnson, all these days, there was a lot of competition. At, at that birth year so that obviously competition pushes everybody you know when the tide rolls in all boats rise and that uh, was really the case there the other thing that that really what happened with that group is that we really went uh, a different direction than most teams where we focused the majority of our time on hand skills so i i i tell folks this all the time. If I go and watch, or if anyone goes and watches a high school game, and if you judge the quality of those players based on their skating, what you're going to see is you're going to see one or two kids that are, that really stand out as far as skating. And then if you go to the other extreme, you'll see one or two kids that you go, 
yeah, those kids are a little bit rougher. But for the most part, every kid at a high school game, they're, they're good skaters. You know, they're fast, they're strong, they can, they're, they can maneuver, they're quick. Now, if you take and you look at that same high school game through the prism of stick handling and who can handle the puck, it's a whole different story. What you'll see is one or two kids that can handle the puck. The majority of kids are just throwing the puck up the ice or throwing it in the direction of their teammate as opposed to puck placement. So what we did with the 88 team is we really spent about 90% of our time on stick handling skills and passing skills. Because again, my assumption was that the kids were all going to become accomplished skaters, but what they would lack is the hand skills. And I always told the boys it's 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 like this back in the old west the uh, Colt 45 was the great equalizer and the, and the guy could be five foot two going up against a guy who's six foot two but if they both have a Colt 45 on their side they were both deadly and I said stick handling and passing skills was a great equalizer it doesn't matter how fast you are doesn't matter how big you are if you can handle the puck and you can make the pass There's a spot in the game for you. So, I mean, literally we'd spend hours outside stick handling on dry land. We would spend hours in the rink uh, uh, stick handling our practices back then. We would practice four days a week. Our practices were three hours long. We resurface at the uh, hour and a half mark and it was Pretty much the same thing. We'd do a warm-up skate. We'd spend uh, we'd spend an hour on stick handling, an hour on passing, and then we'd do some sort of competition at the drill at the end. But the the that whole idea of just trying to take and raise the level of their stick handling skills was really it it was it was our focus, and it was really the key to the success of those boys. And if you look at guys like Scotty Reedy. And some of the Grant Mismash, uh, Benny Copeland, Sammy Walker, Sammy Walker's mom, Amy, is my assistant, and she's kind of the glue that holds the company together. She does uh, little all of our marketing, our websites, everything else. But you know, Sammy's finishing up at the U, and and Sammy is an amazing stick handler. Well, everyone, it's that old saying, you know, everybody thinks that uh, someone's a, a overnight success, but. It's not the case. I can't tell you how many hours and hours and hours Sammy Walker would would spend working on his sick handling skills. And it's all about the repetition. And, you know, another thing, uh, uh, my son played at Chaddock for years and uh, J.P. Parisi was his coach for for two years down there. And JP would, uh, uh, would always say his quote was repetition, repetition, repetition equals retention, retention, retention. And, uh, so again, that's, that's kind of what we live by here at Minnesota made. And then also with that 88 team, you know, you do the repetition and all of a sudden it's automatic. You don't have to think about it. And that just makes you that much quicker. Yep. Yep. And, and stick handlers have more fun than anybody else. I think, uh, and they're more fun to watch too. Let me tell you, they, they, they sure do. They can do things that other guys only wish they could. Yeah. So so did you live by that growing up or was that something you had to learn yourself? No, I, uh, I, you know, I was one of those kids that, you know, kind of fractured a few rules growing up and, and, uh, didn't spend a lot of time, uh, cracking the books. And so again, it was a different time, you know, you spent, uh, you know, growing up in Forest Lake, we didn't have an ice arena when I was in high school. So we would be on the bus down to Aldrich. That's where our practices were. Otherwise you had outdoor practices and, uh, the, my senior year, they built the, uh, the building for the the maroon and gold uh, ice arena, but it just had art. It didn't have artificial ice. Uh, it was a cold enough winter. We had we had a few uh, practices in that rink with just uh, natural ice inside of a building because everybody opened up the door. So again, growing up, 
you didn't have the same opportunities back then as the kids do now. And, and then the, uh, you know, the, it was real clear. I wasn't going to be college material. <laughs> and so, you know, I was, a uh, I was kind of the, 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 you know, I spent my time, like I said, open hockey and men's leagues. We're going to take another moment here to give another shout out to one of our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored in part by Hertel law, the law firm you want on your side. Focusing on criminal defense and personal injury, Harry Hertel has been obtaining results for clients in the Chippewa Valley since 1981. When you need legal help, if injured or accused of a crime, call 715-832-4330 for a free in-person consultation. You know, and Harry is a uh, hockey fanatic who has been a ticket holder to the Minnesota Wild since their inception. So, uh, aside from being a good attorney, he is also a passion for hockey as well. Um, you know, Bernie, we've been talking about the skills on the ice that you need to teach kids, but aside from hockey, are there other important aspects in life that you teach young players? Yeah. Uh, uh you know, I try to, um, you know, uh, uh, for years, you know, one of the problems with the game and kids that, you know, come through and, and we know just with uh, kind of our track record that there's going to be some elite kids that come through here. And uh, I feel a uh, responsibility always have that you, you want to try and help them with the pitfalls that might uh, be out there in front of them. Uh, successful athletes. We all know stories across all uh, professional level sports and college sports guys can get in trouble. And uh, so again, you know, one of the things is, I try and be a, a motivator, you know, I've, you, it's kind of funny, but, um, uh, Brian Lawton's wife, uh, she would always come up to me and go, where, how do you remember all these quotes? Because when I'm on the ice, I'm always quoting somebody. And, uh, but again, too, you know, being, um, you know, having a Christian background and, and, uh, you know, I want to, uh, encourage the guys to kind of explore, uh, the spiritual side of life. Cause again, hockey's only going to be around for a while. And then, you know, your family, you got the rest of your life to live and, and, uh, you want to be a good citizen. And I tell parents all the time, you know, the last thing that we want to do is raise a bunch of big boys. What we want are young men that we can be proud of and young men that, uh, can help this country, which needs a lot of help right now. And again, if, if by, uh, doing, uh, small devotions with my, with the teams that I coach directly, uh, I think that's valuable. I think giving the kids, um, helping them just find their way in life. I think it's important. And again, I can't tell you how many times I've had athletes come back years later after they've left and they, and they tell me stories about how this was their favorite quote. And, uh, other athletes have collected, you know, I, like when I do my stick handling sessions, I give them homework to do at home and on the backside's a, a quote and, you know, whatever it is, you know, build a firm foundation with the stones that other people throw at you, whatever that quote happens oh, to be. Nice. And, uh, so <laughs> I had a couple of guys actually keep books. So it's kind of interesting, but, but again, it's just one of those things, you know, uh, we're all going to answer the almighty someday. And, and how did we positively impact these young athletes? It's, it's important. Obviously you have high expectations for your players and, and their parents. I'm guessing the whole families. Have you ever had to excuse a stu uh, player from your program because they weren't toeing the line? Uh, funny story. Um, we were up in Winnipeg. And, uh, and obviously to protect the, the, the guilty or the innocent, uh, I won't, I won't name any names or anything, but we were up in Winnipeg. And one of the things that I, 
I, you know, the teams that I coach directly, I, we, and this is the, the machine teams, you know, over the years I had the 88 team, I coached our 96 machine team, our 97 machine team, our 99 machine team, our 2002 machine team and our 2000 or seven machine team and our 2008 machine team. So I've had for, and all of those teams are a seven year run. Once you start coaching them, the only exception so you, being, so you the, take them from Right About eight years old, all the, way, all the way up until, yeah, wow. up that Bantam age. So, uh, again, you know, you, you, most of those kids, you're going to have the whole run. And so you have seven years and there were a couple of years there where I was coaching three teams at a time. And, uh, but most of the time I've always coached two. So, um, I recently, just this last year, I've kind of stepped back from coaching a little bit. I got grandkids coming up. So I'm looking at coaching the 2015s possibly <laughs> and working with them. Cause that's, I have two grandkids there. I got another 13, but, but, uh, I, so last summer I pretty much finished up with my 07 group. And then the 08 group, although the 08 group is still around, it's run uh, this kind of their last year. And that's being run by uh, one of our coaches here, uh, Noel, Noel Carl. But uh, we were up in uh, Winnipeg with one of the teams one year. And I've, I've got some pretty strict rules. And so when we have practice, parents, I don't want them in the rink. Watch through the glass, but don't come in the rink. I don't want your kid looking up there at you all the time to to get your approval out on the ice. And, you know, you've heard the old uh, uh, rules that coaches have, don't talk to me for 24 hours. Of course, we got one like that. Well, one of the things that we have uh, is that uh, you don't talk to the other players, you don't talk to the other parents, and you don't talk to the referees. Well, we were up in Winnipeg one time, and we, it was a, this was uh, years ago. We were playing at that first-year Bantam level. Competition's pretty high, you know, a bunch of Canadians, and we're coming across the border. And, and uh, I had a, a parent that literally started yelling at the refs and in between periods. And so as I'm walking off the ice so they can resurface in between the second and third period, this uh, dad is just yelling at these refs and going on and on and on. And I, I told him, I said, you need to stop. And he just kept going. I said, take you and your son and get back over the border because you're not going to play another minute of this tournament. I told you we don't act like that. <laughs> so there was an example where I actually, in the middle of a Canadian trip, had to send a family home because they couldn't follow the rules. Well, that's, I... That's a shame for the, for the boy. With yeah, that, it, it, with it is. With that kind of a role model, that's... That's not a good sign. Yeah, it, and it is tough, but but again, it's one of those deals where uh, I think it's a it, it's a lesson for everybody involved, and uh, the 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 dad has got to learn that you know, hey, you you know, we got enough idiots out there yelling at people from the stands. We don't need any more. Did he come around? <laughs> they did. Uh, happy, yeah, that's, that's. I would a, imagine that was a quick turnaround. That's a happy ending. Then that's <laughs> yeah. what do you want to hear? You know, um, we recently hosted um, one of your former players, Andy Carroll, is a is a guest, and then uh, we also had as a special guest uh, a ten minute interview with a former player of yours, Jackson Hallam. And off the top of your head, if you can go back in time and think of these kids playing under you, was there something that stood out to you that told you that these kids were going to make it to D one level hockey? Uh, it's really funny um, because they're, you, you know, it's, it, it's when, and I, when uh, Sammy Walker was coming through, you always knew Sammy was going to play college hockey, you know, uh, Scotty Reedy, Grant Mismash, you know, was at North Dakota, you know, you go back and you look at uh, Kyle Oposo and all these kids coming up uh, and 
you just kind of knew. Now, when you take and you go back to Andy Carroll, you would have never guessed that Andy Carroll was going to play uh, Division One hockey. But he was always small. He was he was a little bit slower than all the guys. Not necessarily all that tough. Uh, and so you would have looked at it, and it's kind of funny because I had a parent from the '97 machine team, which he came up on, and he goes and he texts me you know, with the final four going in, could you believe that Andy Carroll is, is playing division one hockey at this level and is going to be playing Minnesota tonight? And I said, yep, he just outworked everybody. But funny story about Andy. (laughs) It was funny because I don't know what he did, but he would always get, it's like he chewed on his mouth guard when he was a kid and he would always get this red rash on his mouth. I remember. (laughs) So, but he was a good kid and always worked hard, but you would have never guessed, but, but again, he was so dedicated and worked hard and then you know he just took a little longer to mature and Jackson Hallam Jackson Hallam from the time he 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 was so fast and we used to call him the water bug and we used to say Jackson you skate faster than you can think when he was so younger (laughs) and uh and so in practice he would just go a million miles an hour I said Jackson slow down and think about this it was funny because there was actually times when I would say Jackson he's you're like a gnat bouncing off the lights. I don't know which way you're going to go and neither do your players. But again, the guys he would skate with they were, He was a hard kid to skate when he was younger because he was just so much faster, but he was tiny. And the thing was, is that here was a kid that, that you just never thought that he would get to that level. But again, here's a kid that had all the dedication in the world, all the passion. He did the work. You know, he worked on his hands uh, and he loved playing the game. Same with Andy. And so these guys, they hung in uh, longer than everybody else, did the work. Their bodies matured, both undersized guys when they were coming through and they made it. So it's a great story. Oh, excellent stories. And that's, you know, a lot of the stories we hear are of those kids who maybe had a couple of strikes against them at the start, but they outworked everybody. And hung in there longer. There's one lesson to take out of this stuff for our listeners. Outwork everybody. That's right. You, Don't quit until they fire you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, you've we, we've talked about a couple of good players. We've talked about your 88 team, which, you know, you mentioned what, uh, 11 D1 players and, and eight draft pick players. Is there somebody in your mind who has been the most successful player to come through your program? Oh, boy. Um, that's a tough one, you know, because how do you measure success? You know, uh, that's that's kind of thing. I mean, we have uh, – right now we got guys coming through that are uh, – their kids uh, – their kids are skating and they came through our programs, you know? So, uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, uh, there's a, a young man, his name is Jamie Lathers and played with my son down at Shattuck and, and, uh, uh, played for, for years. And his, his son is now skating in our program and he's one of our coaches. And, and so, I mean, that's, I mean, here's a good quality young man who's, who's now coaching and, taking all the things that he's learned and uh, he gets to coach his own kid. Plus he's passing it on to everyone else's kid that he's coaching. That's a success. You know, if you look pure hockey, you know, uh, you can probably look at the guys that we had from the early days from the 88s. I mean, Eric Johnson's had a great career. Kyle Oposo's had a great career. Uh, so if you want to look at longevity, uh, there, there's a couple of guys that have great success. You know, if you look at guys that uh, had uh, great college careers, we got 
just tons of those guys coming up uh, over the years. And, uh, and then they go on. Now they're in business. They're starting their own business businesses. Some of them are, uh, uh, we've got some guys that uh, came through our program that are now our competitors and uh, around the city. So that's kind of interesting. So again, you know, success can be measured in a lot of different ways. You know, if a guy's got a dream and he's going after it, and he's uh, uh, he's a he's a good citizen. He's a strong uh, young man. I mean, that's a success in my book, and that's kind of what you want. Because again, like we tell the kids all the time coming through, you know, don't use hockey, you know, uh, or don't let hockey use you. You use hockey. And uh, I think back to um, if you remember uh, Ryan Flynn from my '88 team who played with the Gophers was a captain. He had an older brother. His name was Greg Flynn. Went out and played at Air Force. And uh, uh, so after his run at Air Force and playing Division One there, he went in the service and still got to play where he was stationed. I forget where it was, but he played with uh, an ECHL or an AHL team on the weekends uh, because he was serving in the uh, Air Force during the week. And so he, he was kind of like a weekend pro which was kind of interesting, but it's kind of, of yeah, it's kind of funny, but he had, uh, you know, he, here was a kid that, uh, he started practicing with our 88 team, even though he was born in 86 and his hands were terrible. His younger brother could stick handle around him. Like there's no tomorrow. And, uh, but I told him, I told him, I said, Greg, Hey, if you do the work, I said, these stick handling skills and those legs of yours, they could, they could get you a college scholarship to, uh, one day worth, you know, two, 300 grand. He gets his ride to to Air Force, and he sends me a little note, and it says, uh, "Hey, I just my legs just earned me a couple hundred thousand dollars. Thanks, Coach." Oh, <laughs> That's nice. awesome. <laughs> so, Jamie, or excuse me, Bernie, as the father of an elite hockey player, what advice can you give parents who believe that their child is the next NHL All Star? Uh, I always say hockey is a global sport. You know, you remember the old days, uh, Great Britain and, uh, would always say that the sun never sets on our empire. And that's kind of the way it is. Ho- the sun never sets on the game of hockey. So uh, first of all, you got to look outside. There's a lot of great hockey players out there. And uh, where my son, he was, he was very fortunate. Uh, he, again, was a player that just outworked everyone. Uh, one of my guys that works for me has been with me the longest. His name's Todd Blackstone. And uh, he'll tell you that if you look at my son uh, doing something other than hockey, and you'll be like, holy cow, how does this guy get to be a hockey player? You know, he saw him play uh, uh, volleyball one time and you're like, where's the athleticism in this kid? <laughs> but, but again, here was a, you know, he was a young man that just outworked everybody. Dad owns a hockey school. We're both passionate. And so, he outworked everyone, but then also too, he got, uh, opportunities, you know, he went to Shattuck and, and because he went to Shattuck, he got to play some with, with some high end guys that raises the bar of your game. Uh, and then uh, you end up getting a chance to go play for the national team development program, had some outstanding, uh, coaches out there, John Hines and some of those guys. And, uh, from there, you know, he won a gold medal with the, uh, USA, uh, 18 team, uh, against Finland. Uh, and then uh, went on to have a great uh, career at uh, Wisconsin. Uh, he loved being a Badger, by the way. But uh, he, uh, uh, yeah, Mike Eaves. Mike Eaves is, uh, I don't think Jamie would have been the coach or, or the player he got to be without being under Mike Eaves for those years. And, and again, you know, it's hard work. It's hanging in there. 
And then it's making most of the opportunities when you get them. You know, when my son got called up to uh, uh, Carolina, uh, he called me and I'm going, why is your radar detector going off? He goes, I got a race to get to the airport. I got called up. I said, where are you playing? He goes, I'm playing in Carolina. Well, he was uh, with in, in Albany, you know, playing for the, the minor league team. And uh, so he's got to get to the airport so he can get down to uh, Carolina uh, to play with the Hurricanes that night because Tim Gleason got hurt. I think that it was Tim. And uh, so I'm like, so he's speeding to the airport and I hear his radar detector going off. And then, uh, uh, so then, but he gets an assist in his first game. He gets an assist in his uh, second game. His third game, he, he gets a, an overtime goal against Pittsburgh. He went off of Crosby's thumb with nine-tenths of a second left. And that was his first NHL goal. And he gets another assist. So he's actually, I believe, on one of his, on one of his hockey cards, it says that he was one of two players that had uh, four points in his first four games in the NHL. And, uh, and again, so he ended up uh, making the most of his, of what was supposed to be just a fill in for a game. And he shined when he, when, when he got that opportunity. So it's preparation, it's, it's, it's fearlessness. It's, uh, it's outworking everybody else, refusing to, to lay down and then making the most of your opportunity when, when it comes. And that's, and it doesn't matter if you're playing hockey or starting a business or you're working for someone else, you want to rise up those things. There's more lessons on that rink than, than in any school classroom, if you ask me. And all of those lessons apply to the game of hockey and it applies to life. This has been a fantastic interview. And and I love the passion of, of getting kids on the ice at the young age and teaching them the way is Moog. Inspirational. And just the focus on uh, doing it right doing it over and over and over, doing it over, outworking the competition, you know, that, that will reap, uh, that'll, you'll reap rewards with that type of a, of a work ethic. Bernie, thank you very much. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. You know, a huge thank you to our audience. We would like to thank our featured guest again, Bernie McBain. Uh, Special thanks to our sponsors, Raleigh's Coach Club and Hertel Law. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter and visit us on our website at thebreakoutsessions.com. And until our next episode, remember, stay on your inside edges.